Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring the way sound can highlight differences and developments in landscapes and place, with a particular focus on London street life throughout the ages. Ian Rawls is a sound recordist who runs a website called the London Sound Survey, which collects the sounds of everyday public life throughout London. Alongside this, his website also contains a great collection of radio recordings that capture London life between the 1920s and 50s. So today's episode consists of a good old chat with Ian, really, all about sound, London, the change in soundscapes in society, and the history of London street life in relation to this. Now, this is just a brief summary of what we discuss. We do go into a lot more detail with certain things. Like I said before, it's pretty much just a good old chat with Ian. He's a really knowledgeable guy, very interesting, knows everything to do with sound, London and the landscape and the history as well. So, yeah, we'll crack on with today's episode now and I hope you enjoy it. So how did the idea of the London Sound Survey come about for you, Ian? Well, you're not the first person to ask that question, and I have therefore been able to give it some thought. But it's not easy to answer. I think when people, in hindsight, describe how they come by an idea, it's pretty common you know, to think of the, uh, the idea of the insight, the sudden insight, I suddenly realised and so on. But that certainly wasn't the case with me. I think that the idea came about pretty slowly, to be honest, and it was from lots and lots of different pieces, which somehow just gradually came together and suggested a kind of plan of action, something to do. Yeah. I think the a big influence, well, there were two big influences. The first was the internet itself. And around about the year 2000, this was the old internet before social media, when layouts were still pretty simple. And anybody who had a real interest in something could set up a website. It was technically very easy and i think that there had been a lot of you know rep- long suppressed interest uh, hobbyists enthusiasts amateur historians humorists all kinds of people suddenly found that rather than hope for a book deal or something like that they could just you know create a website about a subject they loved and there were all sorts of really great ones kind of worm's eye view of london and other places one of my favorites was by a guy called adrian maddox who did a website called classic cafes and that was just about london greasy spoon cafes and i loved that yeah i did see, i've seen on your website you've got that little bit dedicated to that because you were gonna wasn't it you had a few pictures you were gonna do something with it and then yeah i mean it wasn't a very original idea because adrian had already done this website so i was just thinking oh i can do that too so it was an unoriginal approach and also i'm not very good at taking photographs so the idea never really developed i mean i knew what you had to do which was to actually go and interview the cafe owners and talk to the people and so on which adrian hadn't done but I suppose I was a person of moderate, average kind of shyness that wasn't really, you know, that would think twice before going into a cafe and, you know, and asking the people to tell me their life stories, you know. Yeah, to be honest, I guess it's a bit nerve wracking to do that. Going in like, oh, can you tell me your life story? Like, don't really feel like a bacon sandwich. Tell me that instead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people were nice. They did give me permission to take photos. And I did talk with people briefly. But I didn't feel that I could make big claims on their time. You know, I think if, 
you know, if you're more extrovert, then you can be more like a journalist. You know, you can go in and um, show great interest in what people have to say. Time and again, journalists tell me people love to, to be listened to. They love to tell their story. But I think it's quite easy for them to say because they're often pretty extrovert, outgoing kind of people. Yeah, I know what you mean. So, yeah. you know, and they and they also, I mean, they're confident. So they're quite good at, at kind of bossing people around a little bit, you know, stand over there. Can we go over that again? And so on. Uh, if you're a kind of wallflower or a shrinking violet, you're not going to be a very good journalist. Um, I think I'm, I'm kind of just about average shyness. So I don't think I'm really cut out for barging my way into places and saying, tell me about your life. You know, why do you run a cafe? You know, <laughs> yeah. Are your children going to do it? Is it dying out? And so on. So I never got much further with the cafe thing. But the idea of doing something about London, my own idiosyncratic view of the city was there. I just at first didn't know what to do about it. And that changed when I began working at the British Library Sound Archive. Now, this was a brilliant job. It was just a storeman's job. Well, on the wage slip, it said Vault Keeper, which is a great job title. And there's a comic book character in America called the Vault Keeper. And the Vault Keeper is a hideous looking person that presents horror stories yeah, in, in kind of kids' horror comics from the 1960s. So he got the same name as this um, character from horror comics. Our vault was a more cheerful place than his. We had lots of uh, music recordings, tape recordings of all sorts of things. And it was my job to retrieve them, send them over to the main library building in St Pancras so people could listen to them and then take receipt of them and put them back to where they'd come from originally. And I think after you handle these, you know, shipping crates all the time, you do become curious about what's in them. And all right, a lot of the stuff, there's like old classical records and so on. But there were a lot of the tape recordings in particular had been done by amateurs. And they were things like birdsong, wildlife sounds. But there were more strange things. There was a guy that had gone around and recorded all the foghorns on the, on the coastline of Britain. And a really weird guy who had, from Yorkshire who had recorded the sounds of every bus journey that he could, he could take in Yorkshire. And not only that, but he'd written, you know, very precise notes on the back of each tape box. So I guess nowadays we would maybe suspect that the guy is somewhere on the spectrum, as they say. <laughs> Probably, but yeah. But it did seem, I mean, if you could record bus journeys, I thought it would be fun to go out and record street life in London. You know, I had this feeling, you know, then getting into middle age, I think I was 40 when I began thinking about doing the website. I'd become aware that things were changing in the city inevitably and that some of the things I remembered as a child growing up in central London were no longer there anymore. The street markets were dwindling. The buskers had changed. Um, you didn't, you seem to have less kind of eccentric people on the streets uh, shouting and bawling and so on. So I thought I should try and start recording what was still there. Yeah, I do think people don't really bother with that kind of thing. It's all photos, videos. It's never just sound and when you sort of listen to the sounds on your site it really does make you imagine it and I, I don't know I like it I've always cut to be honest myself I've liked audio like audio books that kind of thing I always have I just I feel like it's I don't know it's different isn't it you can sort of just really take yourself self away with it or pitch yourself back somewhere or anywhere video just doesn't... do you listen to the radio a lot as well you're a radio listener I'm used to be, but now I'm more of a podcast listener. Like I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time because also just the fact, you know, you can sort of be on the move with them Yes, and doing other things. So yeah, I used 
I used to listen to the radio quite a bit. I mean, I listen to it at work, but other than that, podcast hmm. for me. So, so when you're at work, is it just a pleasant sound in the background? Yeah, they have the radio on. So they have like the music on. I quite like chat shows to be honest, because I just like hearing different stories. Yeah, I as a kid, I used to like. I had a radio, a, a big old radiogram. Mm. Uh, my dad gave me and. It was really ancient even then. And I used to like listening to LBC in London and they used to have fun. I actually used to listen to that when I was younger. I used to, do you remember Clive Ball? I don't know if you, if, I don't no, even know if I he don't. still does it. Yeah. Oh, uh, he, yeah, he used to have a show in E&D and they had some characters on there. It seems to be quite serious now, that, that station. Oh, really? Because they used to have a funny guy, an old East End bloke called Monty Modlin. And Monty used to go and, you know, just collar old grannies in the street and say, all right then, my darling, what do you think about this that's going on? And they go, oh, it's terrible, Monty. I don't know what is happening now. It was much better when the Crays were running the roost. They were good to their mum, you know, and it was it was like that for half an hour. There was quite a good Caribbean programme, and it was one of the first called Rice and Peas, and it was one of the first things on the radio, I think, that played reggae music. Um on Radio 1, you know, DJs like Simon Bates were saying, oh, they didn't like reggae music. They openly said, oh, it all sounds the same to me and so on. So if you wanted to hear reggae, you you could listen to LBC Rice and Peas. And the bloke that did it, I forget his name, he had a really good radio voice, you know. Do you still listen to LBC now? Or? No, well, I don't live in London anymore, so I guess. Oh, yeah, you can't get it, I guess, can you? Well, even if I could, I'm not sure that I would. It was just as a kid, there wasn't much to listen to on the radio or, or you could try and tune in on shortwave. You'd hear these kind of like garbled sounding Russian stations and so on, all kind of weirdness that you used to get, which was quite exciting. But if you wanted clarity, you had to listen pretty much to Capital Radio, uh, LBC um, or, or, you know, the BBC channels. But yeah, I, I did, I was very much a radio listener. I think it's interesting what you say about that you're heading more towards becoming a podcast listener. I think that that's, in a nutshell, what's happening with media in general. Loads of my partner's son's friends, they don't watch TV. They look at YouTube a lot. They're quite avid consumers of YouTube videos. And I think there are even some uh, vloggers that they follow. But they hardly ever watch TV. Mm. Well, they watch maybe about half an hour a day or something. I think that sort of element of media is changing, definitely. Like podcasts are on the rise, TV, like you say, people, I think young people, they do watch a lot of YouTube, Netflix. I think all this online world, it's a lot more what they go for. And I have to say myself, yeah. I don't watch that much TV anymore now. And honestly, that really happened um, when I went away to university because you don't have a TV and then you watch netflix or to be fair you watch bbc yeah. iplayer and stuff still but it's still it's a different way it's you don't really sit down in front of the telly as much anymore you all, you all sit around a laptop or like plug it plug that into the telly it's very much um the development of niches i mean when i was a kid there were only initially three tv channels so pretty everybody pretty much watched the same programs Perhaps that gave more of a sense of, of kind of national unity or a shared culture. But now it's just exploded in audio as well as in video. The, the number of musical genres, you know, with active adherence and people creating music in that form is vast. You know, there are subdivisions of subdivisions. That's probably benefited field recorders to some extent because it means that people who are interested in 
in music in a very enthusiastic way have really had their tastes broadened by the access that digital content allows. So rather than immediately dismiss your recording of, I don't know, a bottle bank being emptied on a Saturday morning, you know, some people will actually say, all right, I'll give it a listen. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe it's a good sound. I think people have become more sound literate, or some people at least, and they've created an audience which just probably didn't exist in the past at all. Imagine trying to sell an LP just full of sounds of, you know, bottle banks being emptied or drunk people shouting in the street and so on. And I think you'd have had a very hard time getting a deal, you know. But now you can put it online and people, some people will go and listen to it. Yeah. Have you ever heard of, you probably have, to be honest, ASMR? That's yes. so big online now. And that's like that. So you could be like dropping bottles from a bottle bank or tapping your nails <laughs> and people absolutely love it. They just yeah. get that weird tingling sensation in their head or whatever from hearing it. So there's definitely more, like you said, I think there's a place for those kind of sounds now. You can just yes. put them out there and people are interested because I suppose back in the day, TV or the radio, it's very limited. There's not all this space, this whole other world that you can make dedicated to that one little thing is there so yeah Mm -hmm. yes I'm guessing your interest in sound sort of stemmed from when you were young then listening to radio and so forth yeah you're I I think yeah to some extent I think everybody in in some way is is interested in sound at a particular level it's very few people you meet that don't like listening to music for example so I guess I had a, a kind of an average interest. I was pretty much into bands and so on. I think that maybe the music that you're really into as a teenager um, might tend to have quite a long-lasting influence on the sorts of sounds that you like to hear later in life. I wouldn't want to be trapped by early tastes forever, but I do think that they have an influence. I grew up in... What, seven- what were you into back then, then? Well, when I once I'd got past the stage of just buying really bad records at random almost out of record shops yeah you know like ELO uh, Mr Blue Sky and things like that when you're 12 you know you think that's a great record um, and kind of novelty records and so on it was probably what what I think is now called post-punk which were the bands that came pretty soon after 1977 like Susie and the Banshees I thought were a, their first album The Scream I thought was fantastic really well produced, Joy Division, a bit embarrassed to say Bauhaus. If you read their lyrics, they're just ridiculously pretentious. But when you're 16 or something, you don't really care. They seem pretty good. They seem meaningful somehow. Early dub reggae as well. By that time, we'd moved to West London, and the place to hang around as a kid was Notting Hill and to go to Rough Trade Records. But there were also um, a couple of caribbean record shops which had sound systems so you could hear their music and that was very interesting what did all this music have in common i've tended to have a lot of reverb on it a very dark echoey spacious kind of sound and i think that's probably left a kind of lasting preference in me i like tend to be happy with recordings which are surprisingly a bit echoey very spacious quite dramatic sounding other people i notice prefer other things some people like i guess what you would call more like sound textures which tend to be quite close up or scratchy popping noises but they they tend not to suggest expansiveness of space they tend not really to be about places yeah so do you more prefer the overall sound of an area is that what you mean sort of just loads of little noises in the background everything going on 
I think if I can get something which which gives a sense of accidental orchestration, lots of different sounds happening around. As long as it's not too confused and jumbled. Yes, I like that. Perhaps you might listen, you or your listeners might think of, you might have seen some of those old Hollywood films or musicals where all of a sudden there's a street scene and there's a lot of choreographed activity in the street scene. Like a newsboy rushes out with a paper shirt, an extra, extra, uh, a car drive, a dog runs across the road, uh, somebody upsets an apple cart. All these different things happen. And you can tell it's all very carefully choreographed, you know, by the director and so on. And I guess I quite like the uh, auditory equivalent of that. Yeah. It's funny you said that, actually, because I was I was watching Friends last night and I was just, you know, like when they have the scenes outside the coffee shop, I was just thinking it's so set up. You just, like the way they make the people walk by, the little cargo or, you know, you can just so tell, can't you? It's Isn't it quite pleasing, though, to see that? I don't know. For me, when I see <laughs> that, I'm kind of like, oh, it looks so, you know, it's in a studio. Yeah. Because it's just too perfect. It's just too, like, perfect, everything happening yes. it's like everything that could happen happens in that little it's been rehearsed you know. hasn't it yeah it does it yeah it's so rehearsed almost but but because of that you are then you're very full aware of all these like individual you know little actions and yeah. i guess for me for a good a good soundscape has lots of identifiable actions going on in it yeah i you know, yeah I honest on when it's sound rather than visually i i like it because yeah you just Again, like I said before, you can kind of sort of picture this own world in your head of what it would look like or, you know, it's not, yeah. it's just you doing that. So I kind of prefer that. But yeah, when it's sort of the TV, when they do it, it's, yeah, a bit bit, bit too choreographed for me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll get on to your site. So you have a number of recordings on there from the BBC archives and they capture London life between the 20s and the 50s. So do you know what their original purpose was and, you know, how did they come about? Like, do you know anything about them in that sense? Yeah, I do. Well, they're pretty, I mean, they're pretty interesting historical artefacts in their own right. Um, The ones from the 20s actually aren't by the BBC. They were done by the Daily Mail. Oh, really? In a in association with the record company Columbia, and they were about noise nuisances. This was a thing in the 1920s on both sides of the Atlantic. Medical opinion uh, was beginning to realise that city life was very noisy and stressful, that people were suffering from lack of sleep and so on. Also in those days, particularly in America, there was no air conditioning, I don't think. So in hot nights in New York, people have to sleep, would have have to have slept with their windows open. Hence, you know, you know, you can't shut out the noisiness of, of the street or the neighbourhood. Mm. So the, the ones from the 20s were done by the Daily Mail in London, and they got one of their columnists, a man called Commander Daniel, who'd been in the Navy, to go around with the Columbia Graphophones Company's recording van. Now, sound recording then was done in a method known as direct-to-disc, which meant they had a big heavy microphone on a short length of cloth-covered coloured, covered cable, and they'd hold that outside the van. Inside the van would be two record-cutting machines that work simultaneously. So as you know, the sound signal goes down the mic, it's amplified, and then it's cut immediately into a shellac disc. So it actually makes a record on the spot, oh, wow. and that was how they recorded sound. This was in the days before magnetic tape recording, uh, which was developed in Germany in the 1930s. 
So in the late 1920s, they had to use this method. The BBC in the late 1920s didn't even have their own recording vans. They appeared not to want to record outside their own studios. Um, and in any event, any recordings that they did make, they all destroyed in 1932 when they moved from their old headquarters in Savoy Place to Broadcasting House. So whatever was made, it's all been thrown away. People didn't. People then didn't really think to preserve things. Did that include um, everyday recordings that they got rid of, or was it more just stuff they used for radio? Or it was. It would have been all done for the radio, yeah. and that includes the, with the exception of the Columbia recordings, which were released as a record. And I think if you collected uh, coupons from the Daily Mail, you then got the record for free. It was a pretty strange thing to give away. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just thinking that, especially for those. I don't know. You wouldn't think it's something they do back then. Well, they they were concerned. They even got a bishop to to write about the scourge of uh, urban noise. I think the argument was was that a noisy society is not a, a very spiritual one. So the bishop was concerned about that. But they gave these records away. I think with the newspaper, and a, a couple of them. Uh, found their way into the Museum of London's collections and another couple into the British Library's collections. I'm not aware of any other copies anyway. But they're just street noises with Commander Daniel commenting occasionally in and in a disapproving way on what he can hear. So he you know, talks about uh, a very noisy lorry going by and things like that. The ones from the 1930s onwards were made by the BBC. The BBC eventually got their act together to make recordings outside the studio. And it was really the rise of documentary filmmaking which encouraged this. So there were young radio producers at the BBC that wanted to be like the filmmakers. They wanted to go out into fields, dockyards, factories, coal mines, schoolrooms, just all the places of everyday life and talk to people and record what was going on. And eventually they, they began to make headway um, the oldest surviving location recording I'm aware of was from 1933 when the BBC put its recording, its bulky recording equipment onto a boat and sailed down the Thames with it. And out of that, they made a programme called uh, London's River at Night. It's a pretty simple format. A guy just talks about things as they go down the river. But interestingly, you can hear sounds from the river as well, not just the wash of the boat, but you can hear dock workers shouting at the quaysides and calling out, you can hear sirens and hooters from docks yeah. and ships. And this is at night, remember. So the river was busy 24 hours a day uh, in those times. Yeah. I have listened to some of those recordings, obviously, that you've got on your website. And I mean, it's it does just sound so different. Even the way they speak and everything, when you think, I mean, it's not that long ago, really. Oh, and yeah. It's just how people's accents changed and everything in that Base of time, it's it's so strange. They do. People seem to, yeah. Also, in answer to part of your earlier question, there, what were they used for? Well, these recordings were nearly always used to be broadcast on the radio, but it doesn't mean that they were all always made it onto the radio. They're a bit like the film, the audio equivalent of what I call film rushes. You know, uh, when they're making a film. Uh, they make what are called rushes. They they come back with the film canisters, or they used to before they used digital cameras. They get them developed quickly, and then people would just view these sort of unedited bits of film and see were they any good. Could 
could they make use of them and so on. These are the audio equivalent. They're, they're rushes. They've not generally got an announcer's voice on. They're just raw recordings on location. Mm. Sometimes they would have been broadcast, sometimes not. Sometimes they would have been made to order for a particular program. Other times I think they were just made to build up a kind of convenient sound library for the BBC to use. So if they wanted, you know, um, uh, traders at the street market, you know, they'd have a little library of those different sounds and they could pick one that they they would use. Or obviously for things like animals, um, various country activities, uh, things like that. Do people ever ask to use those sounds for anything if they're wanting to recreate old-timey sounds or are they too crackly for that? Well, I think that they probably are too crackly for um, for trying to for use in, say, a modern drama or f- program or film. Uh, people have asked to use them for other purposes. I don't own those recordings. There are some residual intellectual property rights in them which belong to the BBC. So if somebody emails me and says, I want to use this, I say, well, it's not, it's not up to me to give permission. You'll need to contact the BBC and see what they yeah. say. The BBC were pretty good in giving me permission to reproduce them, and I think I was pretty lucky there. So I'm always conscious that if I don't play things strictly by the letter of our agreement, then they might you know, they might pull the plug on it. They might say, right, you know, you've been a bit cheeky. You can blooming well take them off your website now. <laughs> yeah. So I have to watch it a bit. I have to be careful. Yeah. I suppose it's good for them, though, as well, because at least the sounds are getting heard, like you're doing something with them. Because, I mean, if not, I don't know what they'd do with them. Probably they'd just... Well, you'd it. think so, wouldn't you? I mean, I think they should even offer me a job or something. But I don't think <laughs> Yeah. Good. I think that's going to happen. Keep open with that one. <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> So obviously, when you compare those past recordings with today's, do you have anything that comes to mind like that is a real striking difference? I mean, obviously, I mentioned the voices of people. Like, is there anything else that you feel like I never hear that noise anymore when I'm recording on the streets? Or yeah, there's a lot of differences. You're absolutely right about the accents; they've changed. And when you see period dramas and so on, they never really get the accents right, do they? They're not like the way people sound in those old recordings. No, no. People sound, people talk more quickly. The voices seem to be a bit higher pitched. People are more polite. Yeah, I, f- I thought that. I feel like men definitely sound a lot more, yeah, high pitched, I guess. They don't sound as deeply spoken or anything yeah, like that. That's a big change. Yeah. Um, some people think it might be due to American influences. Oh, really? So people have been influenced over many years by, you know, Hollywood cinema and so on, and men's voices have you know, shifted, you know, down in pitch. Whereas previously, from the 30s, you hear a lot of men talking very rapidly like this. How are you doing there, madam? How are we today then, sir? You know, and they go on and on like that, very quick, very brisk in their manner. Um, not relaxed. It, it's kind of busy, brisk, fast-paced, very active uh, sounding. It's quite different to today. People drool more. I know I do. I don't think anybody really drooled then. People were probably more polite in their speech as well. Um, yeah, a lot of differences. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're a lot more well-spoken. I think that they are. And, this, and, and these are, you know, Cockney Londoners and uh, other people. It's not just, uh, you know, upper-class people. Other more specific uh, street sounds, it has changed a lot. You hear, well, you don't really get live voices. For example, there's a very nice recording from about 1935, Victoria Coach Station, and it's got... Um, 
they're all different coach companies would converge on Victoria Coach Station, which had only just been finished, uh, built. It was only, it was nearly built in 35. And you hear people in a kind of sing song way call out all the destinations for a particular coach. And you can tell that they've done it a lot because I think when people have to repeat a particular saying or sequence of words, it's natural to kind of make it slightly musical. Mm. It, maybe it's just easier to do. Maybe it's a more energy efficient way, but it becomes a kind of, a kind of lilt or a sing song kind of delivery. And you hear that at Victoria Coach Station. You would have also have heard it at all the mainline rail termini in London. We know that because there are writers like V.S. Pritchett and others who, who describe that happening in places like London Bridge Station. Um, and as a kid, it, the fact that it had a sing-song quality had quite, a, quite an emotional impact on him. All these places, these different uh, far-flung stops down the train line out to, I don't know, um, Alpington or somewhere <laughs> not that far away, um, sounded very mysterious and magical to him partly because of the way that the station porter would sing it out. So that's a thing which has sadly disappeared. Yeah, now you just get the old robotic yes, you do. lady speaking. <laughs> you do get her. Now, that's that's interesting. London Underground, I think, is probably the last bastion of allowing staff to speak live over the tannoy system. Perhaps that's to do with their strong trade unions that they have. But you, you do, you, you or until recently at least, you did used to have a few characters that had very distinctive ways of um, reading out train announcements uh, in the station. But as you say, with a robot voice, you know, all, all of that individuality and local character is lost. Yeah, I mean, they only tend to pop up when they're saying something, something's gone wrong, like the train's been yeah, late yeah. or <laughs> that's about it. This is it, yeah. yeah. So that's a big change, I think. The streets, I think traffic noises, you would expect to be much louder now than it was then. Um, there's just much more traffic about and at all hours, whereas then there really was very little happening on a Sunday, probably much less traffic at night uh, the rest of the week as well. Residential streets, much more likely to have children playing in them. There are lots of accounts. It was just seen as a normal thing for a residential street to have children playing football or street cricket or hopscotch or other children's games. Um, also, there were children's singing games and we have a few recordings of them from Wandsworth and the Isle of Dogs. I think kids do still sing songs of some sort in school playgrounds. I don't think that the games are as highly structured as they as they used to be because there's a lot of competition, yeah. Yeah, I did hear one on your site and it was that lady like interviewing the, the kids and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. they she they seemed like they properly knew this game like it was they you know, it was really structured and they were telling you how to play it and everything. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, like you say, it's probably not as games aren't as sort of structures as they once were like that. And I think that those songs were probably made by children themselves, whereas now children sing, it's more likely something that they've picked up in mm. media that's aimed at kids. I can't mind the last one I was aware of, probably the fast food song, you know. McDonald's, McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken and a oh, pizza. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, doing its bit for childhood obesity, that's <laughs> Yeah, keeping it so going. That's the last one I can remember. I'm sure there's a few things like that, but I don't think that children have so much of an autonomous kind of culture as they once had. You know, they get their culture off the media, whereas in the past they probably had more of a hand in making it up for themselves. Yeah. You know, um, 
when you were talking about the Daily Mail and they were recording those things due to sound pollution and yes. what what were they saying was sound pollution? Was they saying it was cars or just the noise of people? Because obviously traffic now is more noisy. But well, in in particular, they they go to Leicester Square, and in 1928, Leicester Square was quite different from how it is today. Nowadays, it's pedestrianised, but then it was more like a kind of green grassy islands surrounded by busy roads all around it and because the old covent garden vegetable fruit and vegetable market was was still running a lot of traffic to and from the market went through leicester square so traffic wise it was very very busy so i think they home in on that location as a good place to find noise nuisances what sort of things do they comment upon uh noisy lorries um incidentally that was also an issue in new york in the late 1920s uh, medical surveys found out that a lot of people were disturbed by the sounds of flatbed trucks. There was a small revolution in the way goods had been handled, which has changed how the urban sound environment and what it's like. And that is the introduction of pallets and forklift trucks. That was really accelerated by the Second World War. But before there were pallets, um, goods and indeed forklift trucks, most goods had to be manhandled out of the backs of trucks. One thing a bit like that still survives, which are the way you see aluminium beer kegs being delivered to pubs or the empty ones are rolled out of the pub. And that's pretty much one of the last forms of manhandling goods in the street. And as you can hear with the beer kegs, it's pretty noisy. So when you had everything was being manhandled out of the backs of flatbed trucks, yeah, that was a pretty, you know, that did create quite a racket. Yeah. And people complained about it a lot. Uh, so that was a noise issue at the time. Old vehicles didn't really have adequately silenced exhausts, uh, in particular motorbikes. So in the, one of the Daily Mail records, there's a complaint about, a, as they call it, a motor bicycle without a proper silencer. So traffic noise was definitely on the increase. Motor traffic was increasing at a very fast rate around that time. So, yeah, people were becoming aware of this new quality of the sound environment. I think we're just, I suppose then it was sort of just becoming so noisy. I think we're just so used to it being so noisy now, aren't we? It's just, yeah. I have to say, um, I did go to Paris for the first time this summer and, oh man, it's so noisy there. I feel like way noisier than London. Really? Yeah, just they hoot their horns all the time. Like they're just so, Why? just raging. Like oh, okay. people, I don't know, maybe it was where I was staying because obviously it was kind of <laughs> like there was bars and all that and everything, but it just seemed that they have all those little bikes, you know, like those moped things. The noise, I just thought, compared to London, it just seems so yeah. much noisier. And that might have just been an illusion to me, but it, it just felt like it. No, it's no. I think you're probably right. Driving habits do vary around the world. I'm told Rome is is pretty similar to what you've described I've about Paris. I've heard about that. I've heard about Rome being quite a road ragey place, loud and everything. I haven't yeah. been myself. I don't know if they're. I'm not sure if the emotions involved are quite the same here because Italians are a bit more emotionally expressive. And when Italians are kind of shouting at one another, it's not. it doesn't mean that people are as angry as they would if the same level of shouting was going on here. I think it's just more expressive and blow off steam. You know, it's, it's funny you say that, actually, because when you think about it, the kind of noise habits and road habits kind of do reflect the countries in yeah. a way, like yeah. the stereotypical Brits' ways and the French and the Italians, like the way they are on the road and 
just out and about. Yes. You can kind of hear it, can't you? Quite strange. I, I mean, and I guess if there's a kind of gradient of expressiveness and we think that Mediterranean is the kind of most expressive, Britain's maybe in the middle or, or near towards the other end. And I guess somewhere like Finland is at the other end of the scale and <laughs> yeah. maybe people hardly ever sound their car horns there. But if they do, they really mean it. You know, you've really got to get out of the way when they do it. Oh, yeah. Right, we'll shift gears a little bit now. The 12 Tones project mm-hmm. on your website, if you could just give a bit of information what that aims to do and what it is. Well, you've you've got me there a bit. Yeah? Yes, because I've been a bit lazy with it lately. This, this was a... The idea of the is it sort of a dead is it a sort of dead project now? Though? I think it could be. It's become it became quite boring to do. I, it was worth having a go at. I think what it is is the idea was it um, to apply a statistical method similar to the ones used by market researchers to find out how different areas of London sound. But by different area, we actually mean kinds of area or kinds of neighborhood and to try to establish different kinds of neighborhood what i did was uh, i used a statistical method called cluster analysis which basically sorts things into groups or clusters based on how similar they are to one another and the data fed into into it was um, about 40 different variables from the 2011 census so things like uh, average age, car ownership, type of tenancy. You know, do you own your own home? Are you um, got a mortgage? Are you a tenant? Uh, ethnicity, educational level, job type, and so on. For individual council wards, of which there are, you know, a few hundred in London, and get them to to sort all these council wards into different clusters according to similarity and. It was quite rewarding at first to see that the pattern that emerged did seem to make a kind of sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you did see these like, you know, a, an area of super wealthy people naturally emerges and it is where you expect it to be. You get ones of kind of like, you know, sort of uh, council estate, inner city type wards. They're all pretty much where you would expect them to be and so on. So do these different sorts of places sound different to one another? The, the job should be made easier by the way the statistics can tell you which one is the most typical or, if you like, average member of each cluster. So instead of having to go to every single council ward in London, which would be impossible. You know, only, I was going to say that would take you forever. Well, yeah, and it'd be a really, and you're not getting paid to do it. So it would be a pretty daft thing to do. Instead, because you've just got the most typical one, and I've asked the program to create 12 clusters there's just 12 different council wards to go and visit regularly and recording um, and see how they sound different to one another i have done quite a lot of recordings all taken but there was also an intention to do a further statistical analysis by actually listening to each recording and then trying to identify particular sorts of sound in each recording give it a numerical value of some sort and then run further statistics to learn more more about it. But I realised that to do that, you'd have to listen to all you know hundreds of recordings in a really painstaking way, noting down 
So I thought, well, I'm not getting paid to do this, you know. I'll just let the recordings as they are stand. And you can just go and listen to these different council wards and see how, how they're different to one another. Do you think they sounded different? Or well, yeah, it- they do. I don't think that you could do a great party trick, you know, where you somebody just plays you a recording from somewhere and you kind of, you know, put your hands up to your temples and then say, right, that's on the corner of, you know, Acacia Avenue and Bingham Drive or something. Um, I don't think you could do that. But the different areas do tend to sound different and they sound different in ways that make a kind of sense Mm. Um, for example the wealthiest areas there is no sign there are very few sounds of street life rich people just don't hang around in the street they don't sit on their front steps having a can and a a fag yeah i was surprised at this i have to admit Um, they often don't leave their their windows open this is noticeable in wealthy areas they keep their windows shut whenever possible, because they're worried about being burgled, mm. I suppose. And also because a lot of the people that are in the houses aren't the owners. They're there like cleaners, au pairs, cooks, uh, security guards increasingly, and, and so on. Very wealthy people have may have several residences around the world, so they're, they're not going to live in one, any single one, more than a few months a year. So these areas have a slightly eerie quality to them. They seem quite deserted. Um, yeah. I know what you mean, actually. They're just so, and they're quite pristine looking as well with their nice yes. edges. And then you see the odd cat wander by. That's about all, isn't it? Exactly. No, they're very Nothing quiet. much going on. I mean, yeah. I guess the residents, you know, that's that's how they like it, their business. Then you've got, um, I was quite interested in the outer suburbs of London. The statistical analysis breaks them down into three different sorts. You've got the richest ones. And you go out there, what's a common sound there? The lawn sprinkler in the summer. <laughs> yeah. People have big front gardens, detached houses. There's also a different pattern of resonance. Um, this is how blind people, especially people who've been blind from birth or an early age, this is one of the ways they find their way about. They listen out in an almost subconscious way for different patterns of resonance. If there's a big building to one side of them, they'll, mm. they'll sense that. Uh, the big, out, the wealthy outer suburbs definitely sound different to the inner city, just in their resonance. Inner city areas are built up. They tend to have narrow streets with relatively high buildings along each side. So there is a kind of echoey, reverberant quality to the sounds there. But out in the wealthier suburbs, people usually live in detached houses with you know a gap between each house. Um, and so the pattern, it sounds much more open. Yeah. There's more bird life as well. Although in fairness, um, birdsong is heard almost everywhere in London. Yeah, I suppose you never really think about that because you just hear sort of the cars. I guess you got if you bother to listen out for it. Yeah. I think it may be in parts of the city of London, the uh, financial district. You probably wouldn't, probably might not hear birdsong. But I've heard things like magpies and so on in uh, Fred Needle Street, just down from the Bank of England. Um, yeah. But yeah, there is a lot of birds. So. Yeah. How far did you get with that then? Like, did you oh, well, not very far? I think I managed, well, not as far as I would like. Maybe I should go and do all the wards at least one more time. Well, you don't have to. <laughs> no, but it would be nice not just to leave it, to draw some conclusions from it and to at least write them up. If I can't be bothered to do kind of rather painstaking statistics which would be very time uh, yeah consuming. i feel like to scrap that 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 was honestly that sounds so uh, overkill yeah, like it would take ages but the, i mean the idea behind it is really good actually like i like the idea behind it 
you know, just to see it. Well, how different they areas do. I mean, I mean, it's not really surprising. I mean, anyone, the next person you meet at the bus stop could tell you that, you know, different areas are going to sound different. But I think in some of the ways in which they sound different might be a bit less obvious, you know. Yeah, and also the other thing is, is at the end of the day, if you think of those old recordings at the time, probably nobody thought anyone would care about them. But give it another 50 years, people probably will want to know what these places sounded like. Well, yeah, there undoubtedly will be changes. I guess one of the big ones, which is which is going to happen in most people's lifetimes now, will be the widespread adoption of electric vehicles. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I didn't and think that'll, of that. So that's one thing. For London in particular, probably the development of new kinds of jet engine, which make very little noise. I, I think that that will probably, there's a good chance something like that will come about. Yeah in the next 30 or 40 years. So that's going to be a big change, especially for London, which is a bit unusual, I think, compared to other capital cities in that so many flight paths go right over the city. Yeah, maybe it's going to become a bit more quiet then than it is. We'll see. I think so. There will be a requirement for electric vehicles to make a noise um, because ones that are silent now, and in Cambridge where I live, there's actually quite a lot of people drive Teslas and uh, hybrid cars which at low speeds can just run on their batteries and these things do you know they can surprise you yeah they just there's no of, noise well yeah they sneak up on you you turn your head by me you know there's someone's got a prius or something bearing <laughs> down on you or a tesla yeah. you know so yeah there will be a requirement i think in law for cars to make some sort of noise um it'd be kind of eerie if you just think of all these electric vehicles silently driving around (laughs) well it would be you know they are i mean a lot of people especially thanks to the miracle of alcohol you know don't always look both ways when they cross the road so there is going to have to be something i believe i read a newspaper report uh, a couple of months ago which suggested that the kind of noise which electric vehicles will have to emit at low speeds would be a bit like white noise or the newspaper said like the sound of a waterfall which is pretty oh, okay. close to white noise. So that's a kind of a broadband hissing noise, but like static. So the car's going to have to make that kind of noise. Apparently, it's very easy for you to localise that sound. Um, you can work out where it's coming from instantly. So that's what's going to happen. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about another section on your website, which was the new one, which is about street cries. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I just you know wanted to ask... What made you want to do that? What was the significance of them back in the day and dying out? Well, yes. Uh, Why did I want to do it? Well, living in Cambridge and being a bit skint at the moment, uh, I can't always go out as often as I would like to make recordings. And I have recorded London pretty thoroughly over 10 years now. Mm. Um, And in last year, I went around all the street markets uh, to record there. And I'll maybe do the same thing again in 10 years' time so we can compare the two sets to see how things have changed. But it is obvious that street cries in many of the markets have noticeably declined just in 10 years. Brick Lane has changed enormously. It did used to have a sort of market bit which actually sold things that were of some use to local people, you know, like cabbages, lemons, joints and meat, sausages, things like that. You could buy in Brick Lane off a market stall. You can't do that now. Those things have gone. It's become more of a kind of tourist attraction like Camden Lock Market is. So what what does that involve? Well, you don't really get people cry their goods at kind of tourist trap markets. They do advertise the goods, but what they're selling is kind of pop-up food stall stuff. So 
what? become hipster central there, hasn't well, it? Well, it has. And also people that are selling, you know, sizzling food or, or whatever, what, what advertises it is its smell. So that that's that's true. Yeah. So it's smell rather than sound, which is the advertising medium for pop up street food, and that's how Brick Lane's become. I personally think it's a shame. I used to like going there, probably from my mid teens onwards. It was always an interesting place. Not all aspects of it were particularly pleasant, but it was at least interesting and lively. But now it's becoming more touristy. I just find it boring, to be honest. So what do you do if you're depressed about aspects of the present? You can't go around with your head in your hands all the time. You have to be a bit more positive. So I began looking up old books about street cries. Now, there's a very long tradition in this country of books about street cries going back to the 17th century. Street cries back then were very numerous, and they really defined London as far as many people were concerned. London was the place where, which was full of kind of, what what's still called in Jamaica, higglers or hucksters, market traders, and so on, people crying out their wares. And because there were so many different varieties of things to sell, you had people that would specialise in selling matches or writer's ink or cabbages or pies or whatever, and they would develop their own individual cries and sometimes songs for the things that they sold. Uh, And They were a perennial favourite for publishers who would produce books quite often illustrated. Some of these books are aimed at adults, I guess a bit like souvenirs. If you went to London, you could come back with one of these books, like a kind of souvenir of your time there. But many others were aimed at children. I think it was seen as a good subject for children. The street sellers uh, symbolised diligence, industry, hard work and so on. And so they were seen as an innocent and improving subject to, to show young people. But it's all quite valuable information about how the place used to sound. As I say, London was a, was a big centre for it, but in fact, even more so was Paris. Uh, Paris really, I think, in all of Europe, had the most literature about street cries, followed by London and then some cities in what's now Germany and Italy. They're almost kind of like an advert for their product, aren't they, really? Because, I, I mean, I used to yeah. live in Croydon, and you know the market there. I do, yeah. Yeah, I haven't been there for so long now, so I don't even know if that lady's still there. But there's this lady that used to just have her cry like pound of bananas and you just knew her voice so well. Yeah. You know, if you were sort of mimicking Croydon Market or something to someone, you'd just impersonate her because you know you just knew that so well. So it's almost like they their cries just get stuck in your head. You, you know that. You yeah. don't really forget them. Yes. It's a good way to sell themselves, I guess. It is. I guess it's probably the oldest form of advertising. If yeah. you could have gone back to Roman London, um, I mean, they had a market there, a central forum. You would have probably heard people uh, selling things in the street there as well. So I think wherever you've had an urban society of some kind and you've had some kind of market relations going on, yeah, you will have heard street cries. So that really does open up a very big history of which we know almost nothing. You know, if you think of the ancient cities of Mesopotamia and so on, you know, which is all lost. Or interestingly, um, you know, the great cities in uh, South America, the Incas and Aztecs, did they have street sellers? What kind of things were they selling? So it's interesting to wonder about these things. We do, I mean, there are fortunately a pretty good uh, array of books detailing London quite a lot detailing Paris. There are some 
from India and China as well, which is very interesting to see how their street selling traditions, what they had in common and the ways that they were different. So I'm trying to collect and scan and upload these old books to my website because it's a free, you know it's a really cheap thing to do you know the results i think look pretty attractive i think it's an interesting side of history i just want to keep adding to that and make it a, a useful online resource and i think also as you gather more things over time you start to see patterns here's an interesting pattern if you look at um very old publications about street cries from the time of Samuel Pepys, which is, I'd say, the 1660s. You see about as many in these old drawings of street sellers, you see about as many women as you do men. So as many women sellers as there are men. Over time, that changes. You have a move away from sellers that just wander around, itinerant sellers, towards ones that use fixed market pitches quite often with a big heavy wooden barrow, sometimes pulled by a mule, more like the kind of markets that we're still familiar with today, of fixed uh, stalls and so on. And these are much more male-dominated. And I think it's because there's more property involved. And the market pitches themselves are a form of property which can perhaps be inherited. So that tends to favour men. Oh, yeah, that that does. And I suppose you always hear of these legacies of father to son. They pass down the business don't they yes yeah that makes sense i mean billingsgate was an example the old billingsgate fish market now that was always pretty much run by men but women were a noted part of of billingsgate life what were called fishwives and they were women that would buy and haggle for fish and then many of them would go around town with a tray of shrimps or something on their head selling them as they went and the billingsgate fish women were renowned as being like really foul-mouthed. I can't really come across any specific examples of what they'd say to people. But you just didn't want to get on their wrong side, I think, was the general idea. Yeah. Now, we don't know how how accurate this is. Remember, these are male writers describing this. So men at the time might have thought that any women who answered back or were a bit cheeky were insufferably rude and bizarre. That's just not how women should behave. So they probably exaggerated some of this, yeah? But there might have been some truth in it nonetheless. I don't think the women could have afforded to have been shy or meek. They'd have to have been pretty tough to, you know, get by and and ensure that they could still make a living. Yeah. So they would have been pretty. Now, Billingsgate Market was very cramped, and people knew this for for a long time. And eventually, the old open-air Billingsgate Market was done away with and a new building on the banks of the Thames at Thames Street was constructed. And my impression from the Victorian photographs of its inside is is that it became an almost exclusively male institution. As it was made more professional, if you like, it was also made a more masculine kind of environment. So that's something of quite an an important change over time. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a favourite recording on your website? whether it's your own or one of the other ones that you've got from the BBC? Well, I think for, for the old ones, the Lavender Sellers uh, cry or song is probably my favourite. And that's recorded from a, a man, possibly a gypsy. In London, gypsies seem to have made the lavender selling trade a speciality of theirs. And most of them lived in South London as well because lavender grew uh, was it? I don't know if this field was there then, but you know that lavender field up by um, 
Mitch and Paulna? No, oh, I always just say because I live like I lived kind of near there, Oaks Park. I always think of that. I don't. Oh, right. It's kind of yeah. like Wallington sort of yes. area. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if that has been there, but recently it's just got crazy amount of popularity. Well, probably. Apparently, lavender prefers chalky soil, and because you've got the um, you, uh, the soil south of the river is more chalky than north of the river. I guess because you've got the last echoes of the North Downs, you know, around Croydon, um, around that. You know, the land is quite hilly there, so that's chalk rising up quite near the surface. So that's good for lavender to grow in. Also, in South London, you've got places like Lavender Hill in Battersea, so that re- that recalls that as well. Um, so. You have the lavender seller, a guy that lived in Battersea who was recorded in the late 1930s. Uh, Now, he wasn't recorded in the street. Uh, The producer of the program encouraged him to go into the studio at the BBC and they recorded him raising his cry for lavender. And it's a very beautiful sounding song, Uh, very evocative, quite moving. It has a kind of odd, sad intonation to it as well. And I, I suppose that seems appropriate because the life of the street seller Although independent in many ways, it was probably a pretty hard one. You had to be out in all weathers. You might not always know how you were going to do each day. So I think it's it's quite moving to hear. So that's my favourite of the old recordings. Of the modern day ones I've made, well, that's kind of a hard question. The ones that I made inside Tower Bridge turned out really good. I was really pleased with them. They were better than I expected. And I was very grateful for how helpful the management at Tower Bridge were and I think the the reason for that is their press officer sings in a choir so he's sort of sound aware so if you go in and explain to him what you want to do he gets the point whereas I've approached other places like bus garages and so on and they just think you're mad or you're you're up to no good or something you know if you say I want to record in your bus garage they just say oh sorry self and health and safety you know go away yeah but I was what what were you recording in Towerbridge? Was it the, it going up and down? Was it like that? Yeah, sound you or? can. There's a there's a chamber inside each of the two main bridge towers called a bascule chamber, and that's where the road section counterweight, which is enormous, that's where it descends as the bridge is lifted. So normally you don't see this; it's out of sight, it's hidden, partially underwater, in fact. Um, but you can go into this chamber with the permission of Tower Bridge. You have to stand on a gantry. Um, set up the recording gear and the first time I had to move away because the engineer bloke they got to shadow me was very restless fidgety kind of person and he kept he was wearing one of those like high-vis tabards it's made out of some sort of tough nylon and boy that makes a lot of noise when you make even the slightest move so I can't tell him what to do but I said I think we'd be better if if we just leave this mic unattended here just let it record and we'll go and sit somewhere else and do something else. Yeah, that, that was a good way to get him to get away well, from Well, yeah, it. yeah, he had to get him away from it, though, because he just couldn't keep still. Mm. But recordists, I think, learn unusual ways of keeping still. We've become very good at it because um, you have to. And it's everybody else that just seems incredibly fidgety now. <laughs> but, yeah, that was a good recording. I'm pleased with that. And more recently, it's not on the site. Uh, it is on my SoundCloud account. I went down the Thames Estuary to a place called All Hallows Marshes and I spent the night there uh, out in the open. The weather was was pretty fine. And at night, the hundreds of frogs, marsh frogs, come out and they make a strange sort of cackling cry. And there are hundreds of them doing this in this marsh at night. 
Uh, so you've got that sound, and then you've also got another sound, which is a, a very deep, bassy humming noise, which the big container ships make as they go up and down the Thames estuary at night. So that was quite eerie sounding. And it was quite a good experience, you know. You're out there, you're on your own. It's a mad thing to do. No one else is. I'm guessing you just sort of stayed up all night then out there or? Yeah, I took a sleeping bag and a thing called a bivy bag, which is like a waterproof sack with an opening at one end. And what you can put your sleeping bag inside that. So if it starts raining, you can sort of hide in it like a cocoon and not get wet. I mean, it's uncomfortable, but, you know, you're not going to get soaked to the skin. And you're lying on your back, you know, listening to all the frogs. The recorder is, and the mics are set up. They're some distance away from you, so they don't pick up any noises that you make. You're breathing or being restless or whatever. And you're looking up at the sky. There are big pools of light cast up from the surrounding towns in the area, South End, um, the Medway towns and so on. The frogs are croaking away. I felt it was a pretty good thing to be out doing, you know. Uh, Is this one of those places that, you know, like those sort of nature reserves where there's a gate and everything like that? No, no, no. You're you're quite right. The one on the other side of the Thames, the RSPB reserve at Rain and Marshes, is like that. That's fenced off. You've got to wait till the RSPB volunteers open up shop, as it were, and then they open the gate and you can go in and have a wander around the marshes there. This is different. All Hallows Marshes is, I think it's, you know, a site of special scientific interest or something. But it's not gated off to the public. Mm. Anybody can go in there at any time of day. Uh, and hence I was able to go and make the recording. Wasn't you a bit scared in there at night or was it, was it fine? I, I tell you, no, that's not a tough question. Um, you're doing something unusual. And I've done this before with like going wild camping. You know, you just go and pitch up wherever you like in Dartmoor and a place called Rannockmore in the Scottish Highlands. And you go up to these places and you have a look around. It's all pretty bleak and rough looking. In Dartmoor, there are these big hills covered by mist. In Rannockmore, God, you know, there are mountains and so on around. And you think, you're a townie. You think, what am I doing here? This is mad. So that you feel a bit nervous at first. But then you think, well, as long as you don't do something stupid, like, you know, jump in a river or, or something, you will be okay. You, you're safer than you are at home in your bed, you know? Yeah, it's true. Me and my friend Alex, we've actually, um, there's a St. Catherine's Hill near here and we climbed up that one night. And honestly, when we first went up there, we were really, really scared. And I think he was trying to scare me in all honesty because, you know, you see all these <laughs> animals like the foxes and you know, you just think, oh, my God. But it, it was it was fun. It was kind of thrilling to go in the middle of the night because, like you say, nobody's yeah. really there. Um, and you can see all the stars, but at the same time, it was scary. And we did that. There's a nature reserve here, but that's like one of those gated ones, so it does get shut eventually. Yes. But we went there in the night, and they've got this massive wooden figure in there. So when we first did that, yeah, it was we 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 were we were scared that you know it is when you go at night as well though it's it's so quiet it's so i don't know just they're in towns but you feel like you're not in a town at all it's just so different from the day because in the day everyone's going in there like kids and people going for walks with their dogs and yeah absolutely no you're right i mean i think if you're into that then 
do do you know investigate wild camping and if you're into sound recording as well you can perhaps combine the two um, i don't know if i'd go as far as you and stay, stay the night though somewhere like that i might be a bit scared well if it's you know you and a friend or something it's i don't think you would be scared i mean it's exciting yeah so i think that's that's one good reason to do it also when you're young you're fit and you know physically resilient and these places are can be quite arduous to sort of make your way around so i say well you've got the physical strength and energy to do it you know go and explore these places if you can or just give it a go and see if you like it or yeah not. i mean we did go back the nature reserve we did that a couple of times at night in the end because after the initial you know yeah. we know the statues there and all that business we <laughs> we were like we quite like going because it's just <laughs> peaceful it's a bit different yeah. at night you know going through it so yes. yeah maybe i should no, it is enjoyable to do that. I don't know if I would do it in, in town. Um, I mean, even in Cambridge, which is a very peaceful place, you know, odd things happen in some of the kind of park parkland and common land around here at night. There are people that you don't necessarily... Well, exactly. You've got to watch out because there's going to be the old druggies and God knows what in those parks at night probably, so... Well, I mean, I've, I can't go into detail about this because it's, it's going to come up in court, but... I ran in across an odd character while out making recordings in a deserted um, bit of common land in Cambridge. And uh, this guy struck me as so peculiar. He was quite memorable. And now he's um, been arrested. He's a suspect in a murder case. Oh, my goodness. That happened one week after I saw him hanging around. Um, God, that that is... So wow, I've got that a, must have been quite a shock when you heard about that. Well, yes, it is. I can't really say any more about it now, but yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, you never know. So you're actually um, you go out to Dartmoor or somewhere. It's actually a lot safer because <laughs> there's just no one there, or people you do. Unless anyone's escaped out of the prison, <laughs> but that's pretty unlikely. They're probably dead already. I'd imagine so. Yeah, you're going to meet hill walkers yeah. and all kind of hill farmers, you know, shepherds and so on. So they're all pretty decent people, I think. Yeah, no, I'd, I really would like to go out to Dartmoor actually because I've obviously been through it in the car, but I'd yeah. really like to go and walk. Beware! It, my, it, it my... seems to rain all the time there. Whenever I go, it seems to rain. So be, beware of that. <laughs> yeah my partner went there and he um he really liked it so you know i think we'll go back at some stage together but I, he said it, it's like miles and miles and i mean when you drive through it in the car you just see it all don't you all that land and yes all those little animals get they always, well, i don't know why all the animals they always seem to come on the road like when you're driving oh i, I don't know it's a sad sight i agree yeah yeah but um Last thing I was going to ask you was, what was your first recording of when you started this website? Can you remember what it was? Yeah, I can. I remember it very well. I bought this uh, pair of mics from a guy in America called Lenny Lombardo, who's now retired. And you wear these mics on each side of your head. They look like a pair of bad headphones or weird headphones. But it's a pretty good way of recording. It makes a nice sound in recording. I've kind of stuck with that method. Um, So I got these things come in the post from america with the customs label on it and everything are oh, brilliant so the very first thing that i did outside the house was i wore them to the corner shop where i you know spoke with the guy and ordered a can of beer or something and went home and that was the first outdoor recording i made and then the first proper one i think you know beyond a test was at uh, petticoat lane market on a sunday morning 
and that was in 2008. And you've got to get to Petticat Lane fairly early. So I think I got there about nine or half past nine on a Sunday morning uh, and just walked up and down Petticat Lane a couple of times to record all the different street sellers' cries. There were other things as well, um, some kind of Christian group, not the Salvation Army, a kind of younger one had some people playing drums and singing at the top of the lane uh, and there were some other things going on as well so that was the first proper recording I made do you think you go back because it's been like 10 years now well I did go back oh, yeah did? I did for the 2017 one well, I'm sorry to say there's there's definitely fewer voices there than there were really yeah, um, yeah it still looks quite busy um, and I still quite like that surrounding mm. area. There are all the other little rag tr- trade kind of streets nearby and so on. I still quite, I still think it's a, an interesting place to visit. But the kind of variety of street sellers' cries the second time round was nowhere near as great. So, yeah, that's a bit of a... Di- that's interesting in just 10 years as well. Like It's a cultural habit, it's a tradition, a, a practice, and things like that can slowly die out, unfortunately. I think once they're gone, it's probably going to be pretty hard to revive them um but street markets have not declined as quickly as you might expect in london and i think one reason is is london has had an awful lot of immigration over the last 20 years and many people come from parts of the world where going to the street market is the natural thing to do that's where you go to buy your food and so on before you think of going to the supermarket and there's a lot of people who are very cost conscious and are very good at making their money stretch. So they're wise. They go to the street market. And I think their custom has kept a lot of street markets going, uh, particularly the one at Church Street off Edgware Road. When I went there 10 years ago, that, in fact, was looked really struggling to me. Didn't look very promising at all. When I went there late last year, it was heaving. Really? Yeah, it's funny, really, because I, I feel like almost at the same time, while these things are kind of dying, they're sort of having a revival in a weird way because of hipsters. I think they like that whole market, you know, like these bric-a-brac markets and all of that. And yes. although I suppose they don't always have the same vibe, it's different because it's organic, gluten-free, this, that, isn't it? Like that's the new market if if they're going to survive. Yes. Can you imagine? How would people cry that? You know, get your organic gluten-free, <laughs> you know, quinoa, quinoa, sorry. I always, I always read his quinoa as well. It's an honourable mistake. But, yeah, I mean, you're really yeah. going to get people in the future. Oh, can I get your quinoa? You know, I don't really think yeah, that's exactly. going to get your get your Ecuadorian coffee beans, you know. No, I don't think I don't think we're going to have that. I mean, we've already known. Just chalkboards now. Well, yeah. Just telling you how great it is. I mean, it's like farmer's markets. They're, they're not like old school street markets. They're very quiet. They're usually pretty small scale. Yeah. Um, and partly because of that, they're more like craft fairs, I think. And people never cry their wares at those, at those places. So farmer's markets are like that. I guess there's one which... A borough market, which is just like an enormous farmer's market. That's actually not bad to record in, partly because of its shape, the noise of the... Is that the one under the roof? Is that the it roof It is, one? yeah, London like Green. In like, oh, yeah, I've been there, yeah. So you could make a good recording there. You do hear voices, but they're just they're just a chatter of storeholders, customers, people going past. No one's actually raising their voice to call something out. So I think that's a, a big change not just in commerce, but in things like political agitation, uh, religious preachers, things like that. Using your voice in the open air um, to call out to many people at once 
I think that's a habit which will you know, which is disappearing and there's probably not a lot that can be done about that. I think these new markets, they're quite civilised, aren't they? They're quite... They are. And and it's kind of funny because you get more like middle-class people going to them and I suppose back in the day markets were like the poor people and just... Well, they were. I mean, people, people from all walks of life... I mean, obviously, if you go back far enough, wealthy people wouldn't visit the markets at all. Their servants would, would do that for them. They would get the food in for yeah. the household. But I think in the – I mean, my mum used to go to a, a small market that was in Hammersmith off King Street, um, and it's died away now. But people from all different sorts of walks of life used to go there. There was even a guy that you saw a lot on the TV, uh, a kind of mad professor type called Dr. Magnus Pike, and he used to go there and buy things off the fishmonger's stall and so on. So people from all walks of life for a while, you know, went went and enjoyed going to the market. Yeah. There is a market here where I live, and I obviously mainly shop at Tesco's, but I sometimes, you know, the quantity you get, it's, it's great value. Like you get all these avocados or all these apples or whatever and do it if I know I'm going to use it up because yeah, it's well worth it and you're not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the bowl of bananas. So, I mean, can you eat 10 bananas in a day before they all go off? And I think that's... Uh... Exactly, that's what I mean. <laughs> I know. You've got to think it through. You've got to be like, right, am I going to eat all this? Like, am I going to get through it? I think strawberries and stuff is worth it and maybe broccoli or whatever. But yeah, so occasionally I do buy from them because when you think the sheer quantity you're getting in comparison to Tesco, it's well worth it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the fact that new markets are, are rather genteel places. I think that's true, and it's the same with shopping centres. One thing that I expect that we might get more of in the future is what I suppose you could call organised spontaneity, in which the you know the management company that run the shopping centre or whatever actually arrange for something a bit out of the ordinary to happen to kind of keep people's interest. You see this at Westfield in Stratford. It's all carefully vetted and planned. But sometimes they get groups of young musicians to, to sing from a platform in the shopping centre. Oh, yeah, like the pop-up thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's to give the illusion of spontaneity. But, in fact, in those sorts of environments, nothing is really left to chance. So I, I think that we'll probably get more of that. Yeah, um, no, that's – it is kind of going that way as well. If you think – have you been to any of the box park places in Shoreditch or Croydon? I have, yeah. I've been to the one in Sh- in Shoreditch. I've not been to the Croydon or Elephant and Castle one yet, but yeah. Yeah, because they're like that, aren't they? They organise things and like you say, it seems spontaneous, maybe having a singer on and or people have yeah. their little stalls where they do food and all that, but it's all planned, like you say. It is, and there's a sort of committee or something who make you know decisions about what's going to work best, where and when. It's a bit like the Tube. I mean, the Tube used to have buskers that would, weren't allowed to go in but they would just go in anyway and start playing their guitar or whatever down a little passageway or at the end of a platform and for some reason this was seen as a problem i don't know why but some people thought it was a problem so the tube began to basically vet the buskers and now they have to kind of audition in front of a committee really before they're given a license to perform on the underground and I, I, I guess, had no idea about that. I, I knew oh no, they, I, I knew that on the street that now it's like that, but I didn't know on the underground. I actually thought they were just randomly there. No, no, they're they're picked. I mean, some people still might try and chance it. And indeed, a recording I made once I was very pleased to make was of gypsy Romanian gypsy kids that uh, got them down the tube carriages 
begging for money. One plays an accordion and the younger, littler one holds an old tin can out on the end of a stick to receive donations from the public. So now obviously they, they, they've, they've not been authorised to do that. But I have to tell you, they're actually the older kid that plays the accordion. He's pretty good. You know, he's a good musician. Mm. I think that the effect of the uh, underground having this vetting procedure, it's probably raised the standards of musicianship among the buskers. But I, I'm not sure it's made them more interesting. In fact, some of the buskers I've always liked tend to be possibly quite mad people or people with a very eccentric kind of approach, you know. Um, yeah, I or, guess you want something different, don't you, because it's well, just generic singer. That's just a personal preference. I mean, if, you, if you're happy with, you know, someone out of music school that can play their cello and, you know, that that's fine. But for me, I've always thought that busking should be kind of rougher and more raucous sounding not polished or anything. It is quite funny, really, now hearing that they have to audition. Like, it's kind of, <laughs> you just, because yeah. you think buskers, oh, that's what they're doing. They're going there, just picking up their guitar, and it's like now they're actually well, auditioning. Think, it's crazy. <laughs> I, well, I think it might have been part of a general drive just to exert more control over the underground. Yeah. I mean, there's probably justifiable fears that the underground was at times a rather dangerous or lawless place. Uh, and they want the pa- travelling public to feel safer. So auditioning buskers is perhaps part of an overall strategy just to keep things more under manners on the tube system in general, just to create a safer-seeming environment. Perhaps not totally dissimilar to the way that classical music is often played in the ticket halls of certain tube stations, like Manor House, um, Wood Green and so on. They all mm. You go in the ticket hall, Strangely enough, there's like classical music like Verdi or something playing over the tannoy system. Supposedly, this is to stop uh, youths hanging around and making a nuisance of themselves. So that's another example of sound. Hearing them with classical music. Well, yeah, it's just uncool. You know, they don't want to be associated with, you know, classical music, so they, they won't hang around there. I guess that's that's how the thinking goes, you know. So that's another example of the using sound and music in certain ways to kind of make the tube network seem safer and more orderly yeah yeah well you do always hear as well they always sort of promote classical music as being calming and all that as soothing and yeah it's supposed to help your kid do well at maths and so on i don't think there's any any evidence that that's the case but you know it's probably pretty good for records and the placebo effect always works anyway doesn't it yes yes that's true enough now you're right there well, I think we'll round it up there, but if you just wanted to let people know where they can find you on the web, on social media, if you have anywhere. Well, I've, I've kind of laid off Twitter a bit because I'm looking, taking care of a family member at the moment. So my attention has been drawn more to the role of a, of a kind of full-time carer for a while. So I've let, I've let Twitter lie fallow. But my website is the London Sound Survey. Just put that into Google, you'll find it. And I've also got a SoundCloud account where you can listen to, I think, some of my better recordings. And that's just go to SoundCloud and look for London Sound Survey and you can have a listen there. Brilliant. Well, thank you for doing this. It's been a really interesting chat. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoyed it, you know the drill by now with every other podcast. Please head over to iTunes and give it a rating and review. I'd really appreciate it. 
find out anything else Sense of Place podcast related, please head over to the website, which is www.senseofplacepod.com. Here you'll find bonus content, links to social media, etc, etc. That's all from me for now. So I'll speak to you again in two weeks.